Welcome to London Stock Exchange's Tech IPO podcast. We'll be speaking to some of the smartest thinkers in tech and business about their journeys to this point, discussing the tough decisions made along the way, all while getting a behind-the-scenes view of the London markets. And I'm your host, Stephen Kelly, Chair of Tech Nation. And personally, it's just absolutely great for me to be back at London Stock Exchange. This is the beating heart of the financial center of one of the greatest financial centers in the world, both in terms of with a great history and heritage, but an incredible future. In this episode, we're gonna discuss what a leader can expect when taking their company public and some tips for a smooth IPO and initial public offering, as well as some of the trends among tech and consumer internet companies in the UK and globally. I'm really lucky to be joined by two leaders from the London Stock Exchange itself. Charlie Walker, Head of Equity and Fixed Income for London Stock Exchange Group, as well as Neil Shah, London Stock Exchange's Senior Tech Specialist. And in just the first half of 2021, Neil and Charlie have already supported the public debut of over 49 companies into the London market. So hello to you both, and it's really great to be here. Charlie, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks, Stephen. And Neil? I'm great, thanks, Stephen. Charlie, let's just start maybe um, talking to us about kind of 2021 and what's happened to the IPO market and, and tell us about this incredible and significant momentum London Stock Exchange is seeing. It's certainly been a very, very busy start to the year. It's also a very different year to last year. If you look back in 2020, January and February sort of relatively normal start to the year. And then all of a sudden, when the pandemic hit, it really all of the market's focus was on recapitalizing companies on the exchange, helping companies get, get through it. It was a it was a really sort of powerful time in a way to show actually the good that public markets can can do, helping companies raise capital to get through get through the pandemic. And you also, you know, we'll talk a little bit today about the UK ecosystem, the regulators, the government, the exchange. But last year, we also saw how powerful that combination can be when they're trying to allow companies to raise capital that they need. What you saw in March, April last year was all of those different bodies really rallying around to change rules, regulation, just uh, really being sort of um, nimble to allow companies to raise capital. And the result of that, or and partly as a result of that, was you saw fifty billion pounds last year raised on the exchange, um, really helping you know companies support jobs and uh, and get them through get them through the pandemic in in many instances. I think this year has been completely different to that. You know, um, uh, unconscious obviously the pandemic is still ongoing, but from a public markets perspective, the the focus really has shifted in twenty twenty one towards IPOs, and so you've seen um, incredible volumes of IPO. You mentioned forty nine in the first half. You know, I was looking at the stats before we uh, came down to record this. We've had seven more in the last uh, 12 days. And just so we've had sort of 57 or so IPOs now. And you compare that to the whole of last year, where the number was 40 for the whole of last year. So you're just seeing sort of incredible, incredible momentum. And those companies have raised just in excess of 10 billion pounds of capital at IPO. I think what's amazing is that that's the largest amount of any exchange in the world outside of the US and Grace China. And I think sort of shows the ability for the London financial um, ecosystem to really sort of support support companies. I think the other thing is, and, and we'll get on to talk a little bit more about this, but 
of all of that capital that's been raised in IPO, over 50% of it, for the first time, has been from technology or technology-enabled companies. You know, that's a big shift from what we've seen sort of historically. So it's been incredible seeing um, founders, entrepreneurs, technology companies using the exchange to um, achieve their future ambitions, to fund product development, innovations, you know, acquisitions, whatever it may be, um, I think has been, you know, really, really pretty inspiring. And those technology and technology enabled companies are, um, they've had a market capitalization of close to 30 billion pounds that have been added to the exchange in the last six and a half months. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been an incredibly busy, but an incredibly sort of exciting time for us all here. Hey, Charlie, that, that's absolutely fantastic. And it kind of explains why you folks have, and the team here have been just so incredibly busy. And Neil, just uh, commentators in the media use words like a bonanza and like a golden era or a golden decade for London and UK technology. So why do you think all these tech and consumer internet companies are choosing to IPO now? And I guess, you know, why are they choosing London? Great, great question, Stephen. Um, look, I think it, this has been a long time in the making. And um, if you think about why companies should IPO in the first place, I think there's you know, many reasons for that. Firstly, I think it's the most natural route for a company to grow its business, to stay independent. I've met so many companies over the years as a banker that you know, aspire to sell their businesses to Apple or to Microsoft or to IBM. You never really know what those buyers are looking for. And it's much easier to build a business that you know, many investors would want to back um, you know, something with scale, growth, um, eventually profits, but you know, not uh, necessarily prerequisite. It's easy to to do that uh, and target an IPO. And um, you know, as a board, you're always looking to maximise value for your shareholders. Now, it's helpful that public company valuations lend themselves uh, towards an IPO versus uh, it's not always been like that. But uh, you know, today that that certainly works. And once you're a public company, you know, you've got the profile of being a listed company. Anyone can see your annual report, your balance sheet, see the financial strength um, behind your business. It's easy to incentivize staff. You can give you know, your shop floor staff shares. You can use those shares to incentivize management teams from all over the world. You can use that listed paper to go and make acquisitions. So I think there's a lot to be said for that profile. It's very easy to raise capital. Charlie touched on you know, how accessible the public markets were in the pandemic when most people would have thought the, the stock market would have been closed, but it was wide open in, in London, over £50 billion raised. And you know, it's not just the IPO capital, but it's ongoing, right? Um, so I, I think there's you know, so many things um, that support that bit uh, being a listed company. Of course, there's liquidity as well. So one of the unique things about our market is that PE and VC funds can sell down at IPO. They can achieve liquidity. Hasn't always been the case, but today, you know, fund managers are indiscriminate. They just want to see good companies come to market. They don't mind if you're raising primary or secondary capital that they'll support that. Now, the second part of your question was, you know, why why London? And I, you know, I used to ask myself that, but I think today it's really what why not London? I mean, there's so much going for London. If you're a British company, first of all, there's that home market advantage. Customers know who you are. Investors know who you are. Uh, the media know who you are. And I think that you know, helps a lot. Um, there used to be this thing called the London discount. Really, I think is a myth. I posted a series of tweets recently. You look at valuations for European tech companies. You can compare them apples with apples to their US counterparts. I think you'll find that 
um, the size of the company or listing venue doesn't affect valuation. It's really the quality of that those earnings. And you know, if you're delivering hyper growth and, and burning to fund that, that's fine. Um, if you're mature and, and profitable, that's also fine. Uh, the better company usually gets the higher valuation. Um, I think UK analysts and investors understand tech. They've backed 27 IPOs of tech and consumer internet companies year to date, um, which is testament in itself. And you know, it's not just UK investors here. You can access those US investors as well. You don't need to, a, a NASDAQ or an NYC listing to get access to uh, US investors that make up 30, 40% of uh, issuers um, registers here in, in the UK. You don't need to be unicorn to list in London, which I think is often lost, right? If you take a company like Pension B, they had six million pounds of revenue last year. Trustpilot had $100 million of, of revenue. Darktrace had $200 million. But, you know, we can support the big companies as well as those early stage businesses. And that's testament today. If you look at, um, you know, Lend Invest that's come to, to aim um, in the fintech space, about £250 million of market cap. And you contrast that to Wise with £8 billion of market cap. Both can work perfectly well in, in London. That's brilliant, Neil. And, you know, I think what you talked about in terms of myth busting around the valuation gap, you know, that phrase, mind the gap, I don't think it exists at all. And uh, you're absolutely right to put the stats out there because I think in London, the evaluations are very attractive and they compare incredibly well with any market uh, and exchange around the world. And the other thing, I guess, you know, um, this session's all about demystifying a lot of the process of an initial public offering. And sitting here having, I guess, a veteran CEO of almost uh, 50 quarters as a publicly listed company CEO, I, I can vouch for everything you're saying. Uh, it's actually, uh, it, there's work to do, but it's a lot easier and it just gives you a massive uh, propulsion as a company to your growth destiny and becoming a market leader around the world. So that's great to hear. And I think, you know, Charlie, I think around that is everybody probably thinks, unless you've done this before and you've done an IPO, it can be really, really tricky and the process can be quite difficult. So where, where can an aspiring company go and get help and advice? And how do you navigate these different choices that chief executives, founders and boards face? Yeah, and I think it can be quite a daunting process, particularly for someone who hasn't sort of been through it before. The, the good news is that, you know, whilst as an individual you may have not been, there's an enormous amount of expertise in London for com for companies and for advisors that have that have been through it. So there's there's a whole variety of sources. I mean, I can I can pick out a few. I think the first one is the LSE itself. Um, Neil and I are part of a global team. Um, we're based obviously here in London, but we've got presence in New York, Dubai, um, Beijing, Tel Aviv, you know, you name it, we've probably got someone there. Um, and that really is an entry point, if you like, to the exchange. So the huge amount of information and knowledge that exists within the exchange. So Neil and I and the team spend a lot of our time talking to CEOs, founders, shareholders um, about being a publicly listed company, about the different options that, 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 um, that they have to access public markets. The second thing then is that the exchange itself runs a lot of events and we partner with um, the advisory community about that. On average, we do it's about one every week or one every fortnight on average through the course of a year. And again, we do them globally. We actually had our uh, one of our flagship events only three weeks ago, I think it was, called the IPO Forum. We do that every six months where um, in that specific event, we invite in 
advisors to talk about, okay, if you are a um, uh, sort of aspiring public company, what are the things that you need to do? When do you need to start doing them? How far in advance do you need to start start doing them? And also bring in CEOs of companies that have been through it. You know, what are the um, the lessons, warts and all assessment as to what are the things that they wish they could go back in time and tell themselves? Um, and so the feedback that we get from those events is is really wonderful. Those are all accessible on our website. Or again, if you speak to a member of the team, that they, they can um, they can always um, in, inform you about those. The third area that you people can look at is obviously our website. We keep that up to date. There's a huge amount of information there. And then I think, you know, fourthly, but and last, but by no means least, in fact, I'd say actually one of the most valuable sort of sources of information is we're blessed in London to have one of the most sophisticated ecosystems of advisors around the city that of any financial center in the world, whether that's accountants, lawyers, PR firms, investment banks, you name it, we've got them. And they're some of the best in the world. They have been through this process time and time and time again. So they are a wealth of, of information and a great source of information, particularly even for companies that are looking for early stage guidance. You know, maybe they're not at the point of mandating advisors. It's something that they're thinking about two or three years down the line. Um, the, the, our experience has been that the the ecosystem that surrounds London is you know, more than happy to engage with companies to talk to them about, you know, the positives and negatives. You know, both 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 sides of it. Um, of being a public company and what what companies need to be thinking about in advance. And um, Charlie, just to add to that, I think there's a lot to be said about the process in London. Um, you can list a company here in 10 and a half weeks on AIM. We saw that with Phonics. Um, Calnex uh, took about 12 weeks um, last year. It costs less to list your company and to be a listed company in the UK. Litigation risk is a cost of doing business in the States. Definitely not the case here. I think we've had three class action lawsuits in the last 10 years. DNO insurance is, is a lot lower. And as a management team, you can spend more time running your business because you're reporting half yearly versus quarterly. I mean, you all know this from your, your days, uh, Stephen, um, you know, how much time um, meeting investors ca can take up. And yes, it's important, but ultimately the, the drive of your business is, is execution. And as a CEO, you really want to be fo focused on that. Yeah, and I think um, Neil and Charlie, you, you really do a great job. And maybe we'll come back to sort of why London a bit more later, but I, I certainly am sitting here totally supporting what you're saying of life as a public company and, and how London's hugely supportive. So, And it's great also. I've spoken to some people who have been through your events uh, and they raved about them uh, and it really demystifies the process. Um, so, you know, again, I guess listeners out there should just check into the London Stock Exchange website and the richness of the information out there. And then obviously backed up Charlie and Neil with the team that you have to help uh, navigate the journey and the adventure ahead as a public company. So I think that's really useful. And one thing back to you, Neil, really, is that um, what, what have you seen consistently work for companies in the IPO process? I think it's really early preparation and lots of it and asking for advice and help when you need it. Um, Annie McKinnon, CFO of Moonpig, said to me that the best thing that they did was to hire an IPO manager in Joe Cave who had seen it and done it before. And you know we've seen that in other transactions with Peter Glover at, at Wise, where you've got an experienced guy or girl who've been through it before, you know, know what to expect, it gives management that extra bandwidth to be able to focus on the day-to-day -day while taking care of the process. An IPO you know, is really no complex than any other transaction. You could do a private placement or an M&A deal. 
but you know having someone to lean on is, is hugely valuable so i'd recommend any company to to seriously look into that yeah and i i guess now on on the flip side though you know what have you seen that doesn't work for companies and and, and what advice would you give them it's really when companies are in a rush and if you've got your back against the wall um if you're not listening to that that advice around you that might maybe saying you know hold on a minute the investors are saying that that this valuation is not going to be achievable or uh, you're better off waiting 6 months and you're not taking that into account it could be the company it could be the board but you've really got to a find a team that you can trust in in your uh, advisors and if you pick the the bank for example now that's not just listening to the banker but what's the research analyst saying what are the sales team saying what are the market makers saying? What's ECM desk saying? Is that message consistent? And am I hearing all the advice around me? Um, you surround yourself with with a good advisory team and, and listen to that team. Um, you know, be rational and not emotional through the process. That's great advice. And I think there as well, you know, just looking at the perception of um, companies, it, it, sometimes there's a time gap between the myths that have been there almost a decade ago and the current reality. I'm just thinking around this, some media coverage uh, around UK tech and consumer internet companies listing in the US. And, and how much, what is the real kind of stress test of myth versus reality here? So every few years, we see a couple of companies go to the States. Um, in my old role, I at uh, at Stiefel, um, I was taking a number of companies public from Europe into the States, and uh, King Digital was one of my deals back in 2014. I also took a company from France, um, Criteo, another one from Ireland, um, Fleetmatics public in the in the States. And historically, I think there was a a strong argument to take your companies public there because uh, sometimes you get a better valuation. There was a deeper pool of of analyst and investor knowledge, but We've really seen this arbitrage away as U.S. investors being more active in our markets, and and today, you know, we've had 27 IPOs year to date. Um, we've seen one company in uh, Arkit uh, successfully uh, go to the states in the last three years. I think there's about three companies. Um, there was in Dava and Farfetch in, in 2018, um, but it's really um, the minority. And stark contrast to some of the headlines that uh, we see. Um, re- regularly. And I, I think companies and boards are really wising up to the fact that you can achieve you know, so many great things in, in London without many of the costs. So you know, wh- why not London? And, you know, we're just seeing almost like at the moment, the activity and a stampede towards London, uh, particularly consumer internet companies. What are, you, what are your sort of predictions for the future? Looking at the H2 pipeline, Stephen, I mean, it's really as strong as as H1, um, you know, phenomenal compared to what I've seen over the last you know, 10, 15 years. And it's a really exciting time to be doing IPOs in London. And Charlie, just turning to you, I, I think given obviously the London Stock Exchange is national infrastructure and has to be hugely responsible and diligent around security. Uh, the, when I meet you guys, I just can't believe how accessible you are. What, what are the what are the big advantages of London? Because I hear it's the most international exchange in the world. Yeah, it is, and it, it is on sort of several measures. If you think about an exchange, it's really just a meeting point between a company and and an investor, and then a regulatory structure that sort of sits over it. Um, if you take each of them in turn, so if you think about the companies that are listed on the London Stock Exchange. 
Um, 38% of them aren't UK companies. Either they're not headquartered here or they're not incorporated here or their primary operations aren't in the UK. So it's a very, very international base of companies that are, that are on the exchange. That extends across the markets. But if you take another measure, just look at the FTSE 100. At the moment, about 75% of earnings in the FTSE 100 are global earnings. They're not in the UK. So it's a hugely international market. And what you find is that that then mirrors over to the investor side as well. So investors that are coming to London and looking to invest in London are international in nature because the companies are international in nature. So of all the companies, of all the investors that are on the exchange or that own shares in the exchange, over 50% of them aren't based in the UK. They're international investors. 33%, as, as Neil said, are actually in the States. So you don't need to list in the States to get access to US investors. They can access you in London. So you've got this wonderful melting pot, if you like, of international companies and international investors all trading through a legal and regulatory system that's respected around the world. Companies have used um, LSE listed shares to buy companies in more countries around the world over the last few years than any other exchange in the world. You know, LSE listed paper is a almost universally accepted acquisition currency. Um, so there's, it, it, that is a dynamic which, if you look at other markets around the world, really doesn't exist. Um, you tend to find, um, not in all markets, but in a lot of markets, that um, the, the, the companies are more domestically focused, um, or the investors are more domestically focused. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily a new attribute of London. That's, that's always been the nature of London. But it's something that you know, we're very proud of. It's something that we're very um, uh, keen to ensure uh, continues to be the case going forward. And it's it's one of the main attractions we find with both companies and investors that are coming to sort of list their businesses, but also invest in companies that are already listed on the exchange. And I just a follow-up to that, Charlie. I think probably we all acknowledge the UK is more open for business now than ever before. And I, I think there'll be a lot of listeners to this podcast from the West Coast and the East Coast to the USA and across the EU, companies like Trustpilot. Mm. Uh, and out in Asia. So so what message would you give to our international listeners out there? Well, look, I think some one of the questions that we uh, we sometimes get asked is, you know, why would I list a company in London? And I think, you know, what's interesting is when you do a sort of side-by-side -side comparison, um, you almost start thinking, well, why wouldn't you list a company in London if it's, if it's the right company? And by the way, we're very conscious that, you know, not every company should come to London, right? We're, whenever we're speaking with companies, it's always... Um, we're always trying to put ourselves in the uh, sort of shoes of the company of what, what market do we think is going to best achieve what they want to achieve. And, you know, honestly, sometimes the answer isn't London and that's absolutely fine. But when you're dealing with companies that, you know, are international in nature or are UK based, have pan uh, or, or sorry, have global revenue streams, you start thinking, well, actually, you know, London really does have a lot, a lot to offer them. Probably the most common question we get is, shall I list my company in London or the States? If it's a technology business, that's the most common question. We get others as well, but that's the most common one. And when, again, you start doing a sort of side-by-side -side, um, of the exchanges, you start thinking, well, you know, if you want to access international investors, you look at the investor base on the LSE versus some of the US exchanges, it's far more international in London. You start thinking about, well, do you want to quarterly report? That is a requirement in the US. It's not in the UK. We have a voluntary quarterly reporting system. You, you, you're you required to report on an, an annual and a semi-annual basis. You know, we don't have Sarbanes-Oxley here. That, that doesn't exist in the UK. Um, we have a global, globally respected legal and regulatory system. Um, inclusion in indices is something that companies are more and more interested in. You're seeing this 
this huge shift away from active fund management to passive fund management. So being included in an index or having the option to be included in an index in the future is something that more and more companies uh, want to have an option on. Obviously, in London, we've got the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250. And the great thing about those indices is that they are geographically agnostic to where the revenue of a company comes from. Like I say, 75% of the earnings of the FTSE 100 is global in nature. If you look at other markets around the world, they often require you to be a, you know, quote unquote, US business or a quote unquote, Chinese business or a quote unquote, whatever the, the territory is. And again, that's the sort of outward looking nature of London. It's not about are these just quote unquote UK businesses? It's it's a it's a global exchange, a global environment. So you start sort of putting these things side by side, and you start thinking, okay, well actually there's there's a huge amount that um, uh, that the London market has to offer these companies. That's really interesting, and you're so right with the shift to passive investing. It's so attractive to be included in one of those indices, and um, just thinking about it, sitting in the shoes as I've done, and you've spoken to lots of people of the founder, CEO, and the board, you know, and I remember actually, you know, this is a long time ago, but we, we used to, in the recruitment process with senior executives, always say, you know, the IPO, when's the IPO? And it was always going to be 18 months away. It's almost became a joke because, uh, you know, the time clock shifted, um, you know, from quarter to quarter, but we did it and we IPO very successfully. And it was a what's become known as a unicorn worth $2 billion. So, I'm just thinking, though, from a founder, CEO, board point of view, and you touched a bit on this, Neil, but when is the right time to start thinking about the IPO journey and weigh it up with the other factors in terms of the growth and capital raise journey for the expansion of the business? What is the right time? That's a really tough question to answer, Stephen, because I think we're really fortunate today to have a market that's really accessible to companies of all sizes. We see companies that... Uh, maybe down um, the venture capital route of raise a series A, a series B, a series G. And uh, the common denominator for many of these companies is that they could all IPO today should they choose. Um, this is a really um, accessible market. Founders today have more options that, than ever um, to, to fund their businesses. And you know, a, a London IPO, um, it definitely stands out there. You, know, you take Pension B, um, £6 million of revenue last year, were able to list successfully onto not only our aim market should they have chosen, but they uh, decided to reopen our high growth segment, which was designed precisely for businesses like theirs, where there's a no, uh, lower free float requirement of, of 10%, uh, providing they um, have a certain size of, of float or, or market cap. Um, so we're, we're open for business and would love to meet uh, any company um, who wants to see if this may be a, an option for them. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think also um, one of the things that makes uh, the sort of exchange unique is that we have multiple different segments or markets. So it's not a sort of one size fits all for companies. And that's how we have the breadth that we have. If you look at the companies that have listed year to date, about 20% of them are actually sub 50 million pound market capitalizations. Surprises quite a lot of people. The way th and the reason that we're able to to do that is that we don't have one market uh, that has the same rules that apply to everyone. We have AIM, the world's largest growth market. Um, we have the main market, which has a standard segment and a premium segment. We've got a high growth segment for companies with a revenue CAGR of more than 20%. So the list, and there are more, by the way. <laughs> um, so the idea has been 
um, to make sure that there's an environment that can um, uh, there's a there's a listing segment that can provide the environment that's needed for companies to thrive almost regardless of the stage of the life cycle that, that, that they're at and, and that companies can move in between them as well. We have company, many companies that move from AIM to the main market and vice versa. We have companies that move from standard segment to the premium segment and vice versa. So it's it's not a sort of once you join the market, you're on that, that same market or that same segment forever. That's something that's pretty unique to London. If you look at most other markets around the world, maybe they've got one or two markets or segments, but actually you don't tend to have multiple ones. And that's also partly because of heritage. The LSE is now 300 years old. So these markets have grown up over a period of time um, and we're constantly refining them as well. It doesn't it doesn't sort of sit still. There's reviews going on at the moment in the UK around um, the listing environment. And so there's potential for that to change again in the future. It's, it's constantly evolving to try to make sure that it's meeting the needs of the companies and the investors that, that, that want to transact. Stephen, um, there's another point that I wanted to highlight, which is companies are never stuck on our market. So if you take iMyMobile, they were acquired by Cisco recently, or Codemasters, which um, was uh, taken out by EA recently in a bidding war with uh, Take-Two. London and the takeover code is designed to facilitate M&A. We see tons of it um, by being on our market. Um, you know, companies that you know, do want to eventually sell uh, to a trade buyer are not prevented from doing so. And um, you know, frankly, what better ammunition uh, do you have in an M&A process to be able to tell a bidder that, well, you know, if the price isn't right, we'll be able to take our company public? Yeah, I definitely see that London Stock Exchange is just a fantastic showcase for companies out there. But, you know, I am genuinely surprised with people like Pension B at six million in revenues. I think there's still a perception out there, and, and maybe we all do this. We celebrate the UK's 100th unicorn in the last couple of weeks, a billion-dollar company. Uh, as a unicorn and we celebrate i think the uk market valuation of the tech sector now is 600 billion so we always kind of come out with these headline figures but actually from what you guys are saying is there's never a bad point to start exploring you know what the right time is for an ipo at, at whatever revenue and you've got a range of different market solutions that allow you know to fit the company as appropriate to them is that is that fair to say yeah, I think it is. I think also you're starting to see um, the blurring almost of public and private lines a little bit. Um, and you're seeing this with a lot of the institutional fund managers setting up sort of what are called crossover funds so they can invest in, you know, whatever it is, the, the series D, E, F, if you want to call it that of a company, but then also they can then transition that holding into a, a public fund. So with that crossover side, what you're starting to see is some companies choosing to stay private and conducting the series D, E, F in private land. But others actually saying, well, I'll access the public market slightly earlier. And the, the access to the public markets kind of becomes my Series D, if you want to call it that. Um, so that's been really interesting to sort of see that that transition come over. You're also seeing companies wanting to access the market in different ways. Um, you know, you've seen um, the SPACs um, sort of phenomenon in the, in the States um, uh, over, over recent months and years. The FCA is currently consulting on that um regime for the uk that they said they'll report early summer but also direct listings you know we were extremely proud that we welcomed the first ever technology direct listing onto the london stock exchange which is um was wise formerly known as transfer wise which we've mentioned you know market capitalization when it listed it opened at eight billion pounds closed that day at 8.8 .8 billion pounds and last time i looked it was closer to 10 you know phenomenal success i mean that was a company that 
didn't actually need to raise any money at IPO. So again, shows a sort of third route, if you like, to access the public markets where they simply admitted the shares to the market. And so we ran a three-hour opening auction for them, which basically allowed the buy orders and the sell orders time to react to one another and uncrossed at a at, a, at an orderly price in the market. So the, the stock uncrossed at 11 a.m. rather than 8 a.m. Um, so you're... I think what you're starting to see is all of these innovative ways of companies accessing the markets, the times that they're looking to access the market. It's It used to be quite a defined point in time. Okay, the company is quote unquote ready to IPO. You're starting to see actually that I think these, the, these things are blending. You're also starting to see a lot of companies that join the public markets and then do things, uh, you know, whether it's partnerships or investments in the public realm. You saw this with um, Dark Trace came to the market then signed a, a big transaction with Microsoft, as an example. THG, I think it right. was, um, had an investment from SoftBank. Um, so you, again, you're starting to see, I think, the, the the blurring of these lines, which is you know, which is which is great to see because I think a lot of public market investors do want to get access to these stories at a slightly earlier stage. So if it's right for the companies, you know, recent history would suggest that there's demand from investors for it. Well, I've got to ask you as well, Charlie. You mentioned that the the London Stock Exchange has 300 years heritage and history. And that's built of trust and integrity and an amazing brand. But just looking forward, we're just hot off the heels of uh, Lord Hill's review, uh, the Khalifa review for fintech. We have a prime minister who openly talks about the UK becoming a science and technology superpower. It's an incredibly evocative time and exciting. If you were to stargaze into the future, kind of what would it look like for both London and its accessibility and becoming a magnet for technology uh, consumer internet companies? I think it's a, it's, it's a hugely exciting time because you have an environment where, uh, you know, yes, the, you've got the London Stock Exchange, but actually we're one player in a much, much sort of broader picture, if you like. And you've got a government, you've got a regulator, you've got an investment community, you've got an entire ecosystem that is focused on a sort of singular mission, which is to allow entrepreneurship to thrive and to build global businesses that can um be founded in the UK, but can also then scale in the UK. And that's that's really, really exciting, um, I think, uh, prospect for the country, let alone for for the exchange itself. I think when you're then sort of boiling that down and saying, okay, well, what, what tangibly then is happening um, from the exchange perspective, you start looking at things like the Khalifa FinTech Review, as an example, or the Lord Hill Listing Review, um, or the FCA consultations that are going on, the Treasury consultations that are going on. So these aren't just words. They're being backed up by live consultations where there's a very active debate going on about what is the best way to structure public markets going forward to allow entrepreneurs to you know, achieve their dreams, right? To, to scale their businesses, to raise the finance that they need, to create the jobs, to invest in the innovation, invest in the, pro- in the products that they want to. And I think that's the sort of, live debate that is going on at the moment everyone is very very clear on what uh, the end goal of it is um, and what's great to see is there's a lot of passion that's being brought to the debate at the moment and it's just really a case of working out well, what's the best way of of getting there i can't think of too many more markets around the world that has that heritage of a financial ecosystem behind it and is a thriving tech sector and you start putting the two of them together and you start looking at, well, what does that mean for the technology companies or for the technology enabled companies? 
you start thinking, well, there can't be too many more exciting places in the world to be right now. And I think this is really healthy for the entire economy, but also UK pensioners. The fact that you've got Dark Trace, Trustpilot, ATG and Moonpig now in the FTSE 250 and accessible to many tracker funds um, is, is phenomenal. And long may that continue. Yeah, and I think just looking at these companies, they're all about growth. And their growth as a company gets translated to the valuation and the ascendancy of their stock price ultimately. And that, that then's reflected in the industry. So, you know, I think there's so many good things to reflect on. And as you say, both Charlie and Neil, it's an incredibly exciting time for London and the tech sector. Just thinking about it in the context of, you know, what does it give me? And Neil, you touched on this earlier. Uh, as a public company, what does it? What's different? What changes when you kind of flick that switch? D- day to day, Stephen, I, I don't think that much. And you, know, you you've been there and breathed this. Um, but really, the difference is that there is a price on the screen. Should you choose to to monitor that? And you know, we say to CEOs all the time, don't look at that stock price every minute. It's there. You know, focus on on the long term. But you know, it, it's hugely helpful. For a supplier or a customer to see, you know, if this is a, a reputable business, if it's got the financial backing to support uh, the, the company going forward, when you're looking to hire staff or incentivize the staff you already have, um, you know, being public has so many benefits. And, um, you know, I, I encourage more companies to speak to advisors and see if this may be an option for them. Yeah, I, th- I think I haven't sat in those shoes as well. I just think it does, it elevates your brand dramatically. You're obviously then featured, you know, whether it's the Evening Stand or the Scotsman or the National Broadsheets, as well as social media, brand elevation. And you're right, Neil, you've touched on it. All the stakeholders who you care about, your customers, your employees, your suppliers, and everybody feels a lot more comfortable and everything's much more transparent in terms of your financial results. And and it is really a bond of trust that actually permeates into the market and could be another accelerator to your growth journey. So I think that's so true. I think final area I just want to talk about, and I, I've, I have been indulged here actually because I've come in and used the facilities of the London Stock Exchange. But again, if you haven't been in this amazing building, you know what, what happens when you've done the IPO and it's results time, it's show time. And what happens in here and how, do, how does it feel like, what, what services do you provide to these companies who come in at results time and what sort of facilities could they expect? Yeah, so I mean, let's take a step back, I guess, on the day of the actual IPO, there's normally a buzz in the exchange. It's one of the things that I've sort of missed most by having to sort of work remotely over the last 18 months or so, uh, going on for 18 months. Um, so on average, there's a company in, you know, that's just listed on the market every day, every other day. Um, and we have the management team in and the advisory uh, team in. Um, normally it's about 7.30 in the morning, it's a bit of an early start, glass of champagne, orange juice um, in the VIP room, um, getting ready to open the market and to see their shares trade for the first time. So it's a, it's a point of enormous pride um, normally for the management team. We then go out onto the balcony um, and the, market, the, the management team literally open our market and they can see a live visualization of what's going on in the market and they can see um, uh, their, their shares trade for the first time. Um, and then afterwards we go back into the VIP room and 
we hear um, speeches. And normally the, the management team often want to say some thank yous and, and some words of gratitude to the people who often haven't slept the night before to get, get the deal over the line. Um, that's a, a wonderful moment and it's a huge celebration, but obviously it's really just the start of a journey of being a publicly listed company at that point. Um, and after that, the services that are available from the exchange um, uh, are plentiful. Um, so for companies that want to um, uh, use the LSE website almost as an extension of their own investor relations website, that facility is 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 there for them. It's London Stock Exchange is one of the most visited websites in the UK. Um, and a lot of that is investors trying to get access on the companies or information on the companies that are listed on the exchange. And then the services vary from companies that want to live stream their results through the LSE website, would like to use the facilities within the exchange. We've got a phenomenal auditorium, which is um, just behind where we're sitting, which you've obviously been in several times during your life as a, a publicly listed CEO, um, where you know, whether it's annual results or capital markets days or, or whatever the event is. Um, and then we're always here to help if there's anything else that we can help with. Um, the, the dialogue with issuers tends to be... Um, yeah, it tends to be pretty pretty good. That's great. And, and speaking as someone who's used your facilities, this is kind of one of the best mission controls that I've seen in the world where you can set up on results day your management team. Uh, actually, on the IPO day, you can live stream stuff to your employees, get that excitement, the buzz. But we all know it's just a moment in time and the sort of treadmill of half-year reporting and just delivering for all the stakeholders kind of just, it just accelerates from that moment. And uh, you, you guys and the facilities you got provide the most professional presentation of a company to the public markets, and it's uh, very reassuring. So one final question, I guess, for both of you is um, you've seen amazing momentum, and we're only just in the, the middle of 2021 and the highest level of capital raising since I think it was back to 2014. What are you guys so excited about for the UK? Taking something from Wise's direct listing last week was the hashtag mission unfinished. And that's really our mission. There's so much more to do, Stephen. Um, you know, today, tech probably makes up about um, 12, 15% of fund managers' portfolios. And re really, it ought to be about a third. So um, uh, we look forward to welcoming you know, many more um, technology and consumer internet companies onto London Stock Exchange and you know, watch this space in terms of what we'll be doing with the recent acquisition of Refinitiv um, to provide you know, better services to companies once they're on market in terms of data and analytics, um, our webcasting service, Spark Live, and you know, just general education and information. Retail shareholders are highly thought of in the exchange. We're really passionate about providing fair and equal access to any investor. And it's great to see primary bid being used increasingly um, in IPOs, but also follow-on fundraisers. Now, this is incredibly important for, for companies. London's a heavily institutional market. You can have a company of a two, 300 million pound market cap that's highly tightly held by 20 or 30 shareholders, but no trading volumes because there's no retail in that. And this is an excellent solution to, to, to that. It's really a win-win. That's great. And Charlie, what about you? I'm not sure I could say much too much better than that. I, I think um, the, the reform agenda that exists in the UK at the moment, I think has been going on for about six months now. It's, it's obviously got a way to go. Um, I think the ability to continue to tailor our markets so that um, you know companies are able to access the markets in a way that they want to, that helps them achieve what they want to achieve, I think is a phenomenal opportunity um, over the next six months. So 
Um, we are only one part of that, naturally, um, but we'll obviously be playing our, our role in that. And I think that's that offers a hugely exciting opportunity for the future. I think also Neil's touched on, gre uh, touched on retail. The other thing is obviously um, also around the move to uh, decarbonisation. That's a role that um, I think can't practically speaking happen without capital markets. And again, that's a role that um, we think that uh, we're very keen to play a sort of meaningful leadership role in that. Um, so that's something that we've been focused on historically and something that we're certainly going to be focused on in the future. That's amazing. And, you know, I've been very lucky to get to know you guys and work with you. Uh, but it's it's also nice to see the personalities of you both. So we're going to do a bit of fun and, and quick fire round to sort of wrap up with. Uh, and maybe firstly, um, Neil, you know, what what do you love to do when you're not working at the London Stock Exchange? Stephen, I've got two young boys, um, Rishabh, who's nine, and Rian, who's five. So uh, any moment I get to uh, play FIFA or get beaten at FIFA or kick the ball around the, the, the garden is, is what I'm usually doing when I'm not working. Mine are slightly younger, so they're not yet playing FIFA. I wish they were. So mine's normally sort of running behind them on a bike. But yeah, every every minute that I'm not at the exchange, I tend to be trying to spend it with the with the little ones. That's a good thing to do. And what, what are you guys, if you had to recommend kind of one book that jumps out that you read during the pandemic, what would it be? Gosh, I mean, I've got three for you. I hope that's all right. That's um, so Morality was a great book by the late Jonathan Sachs, um, focused on we, not I. And if we do a little bit to help each other, then we can lift each other up. It was a great read. Um, Stephen Povey, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, great read. And um, Alex Brum, I have to give it to him on um, The Great British Reboot, just reminding us of all the things we take for granted as, as Brits. That's great now. And Charlie? I read uh, recently a book by the CEO of Netflix called No Rules Rules, um, which is about creating a culture of innovation and some of the almost sort of psychological experiments that went on around removing holiday policy or removing T&E policy and seeing how people sort of reacted to that. And I, I thought that was a, I thought that was an incredibly good read. I'm not sure it would work here, but it's an incredibly good read. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's good to have a different perspective. Um, maybe start with you, Charlie. What's the most exciting trip you've ever done? Oh, gosh, that I've ever done. Um, so I lived in Australia for two and a half years, um, floating companies onto the ASX and raising money for companies that were listed on the ASX. I'm not sure I could pick one trip, but during that two and a half years, we traveled all around Australia. Um, and it's a, as everyone knows, it's a big old country and that takes quite some time. I think that's probably as a sort of clump of trips together. That was a pretty remarkable experience. Um, some absolutely incredible, incredible scenery. And one one amazing landscape that sticks out. Uh, we went to the Great Barrier Reef, which um, was pretty pretty spectacular, I have to say. And what about you, Neil? Twenty one years ago, I was fortunate to climb to the top of Kilimanjaro, um, which was just beautiful, Steve. I mean, the change in scenery as you're climbing up and coming back down was beautiful, and uh, to see a a snow-capped mountaintop, burnt the skin of my nose. It was uh, it was good fun. Great. And and you guys are right at the heart of arguably the greatest city in the world. What, what's your favourite London landmark? Well, I'm going to go really local to us and say St Paul's Cathedral. Um, sometimes my desk overlooks the cathedral and there's days where I have to sort of pinch myself to you know, realise, wow, okay, you actually are working you know, right next to this and you can see it from your desk. Um, I spent a lot of time in Canary Wharf, which um, I liked. It's, it's certainly got its, it's um, you know, it's very, very functional, but I, I mean, working next to St. Paul's Cathedral as the LSE is based, I think is a pretty, 
pretty spectacular location. I can't think of too many better locations than that. So true. And Neil? The St. Paul's is a beautiful place. For me, I, I think it probably has to be Wembley. As a football fan, to be sat amongst you know, 88,000, 90,000 fans you know, watching a game, the FA Cup final, is just f- f- phenomenal. That's good, Neil. D- dare I ask, who's your team? Liverpool. Okay, that's good. Well, hopefully they'll be back at Wembley next year. I hope so. That's good. And um, just final question. If you could have coffee or dinner with anybody, living or dead, who, who would it be? I'm going to have to say sorry to Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I'd probably say Sir Michael Moritz. Um, I've been really impressed with um, the Midas touch that he's had and being able to spot you know, some of the best companies in tech that have emerged, be it Google or Yahoo or LinkedIn um, o- over the years. And uh, you know, the fact that he's a, a, a Welsh chap is, is even more impressive. That's brilliant. That is good. Charlie? I think I would have to go with Mr. Buffett, actually. Um, I think someone who's been there, seen it through countless cycles, um, I think would be a sort of, yeah, pretty unique perspective on things. Yeah, he'd be amazing. He'd be amazing. Well, we're, you know, so privileged to listen to your experiences and sort of demystify the whole process of the initial public offering. But just final thoughts, maybe for the listeners out there, maybe Charlie. I think I'd just like to say, look, if there's anyone that is interested in finding out more, please do contact us. Um, Our doors are always open, as you know. Um, The exchange, whilst it's got a lot of security around it, um, it really is a sort of open house. We we welcome companies in every day that are looking for information. We love meeting entrepreneurs. We love meeting founders. We love traveling the country and if not the world um, to, to see where they're working, see what they're trying to achieve. And understanding and um, hopefully helping them achieve what they want what they want to achieve. So, if there's sort of one message I hope people are left with, it's that you know, London's very much open for business, and and we're here to help them as as we can. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Charlie Walker and Neil Shah. What, what a fabulous podcast, and it's part of this incredible London's Calling, the London Stock Exchange Tech IPO podcast. So tune in for other episodes, and thank you guys very much for today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Stephen.